Happy Tuesday, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. Uh, it is Monday, so that means it is time to dive into the weekly updates. What is going on in the world of commercial real estate? I'm going to go ahead and apologize as well. We are doing quite a bit of work on my office building at the moment. Uh, as you guys have probably heard from the last few episodes, we're still updating the flooring, um, and that is what they're going through right now. So lots of fun. But today we're going to be talking about a couple of larger sales in Nashville. Pretty exciting news coming from there. Lease terms are starting to get longer. They actually got pretty short back in the uh, back when COVID hit, um, for obvious reasons. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. And then AI continues to step up CRE. It is very exciting to see what is going on in the world of commercial real estate. Let me see if I can get Andy in here real quick. It looks like he is waiting in the guest room. Hmm. There we go. Andy, you there? Hey, hey. There we go. Here. Some, <laughs> some minor technical difficulties with Andy going on now. Hey, Andy, can you mute your mic? It's really loud. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, yeah, as I said, we're going to dive into those three topics today. I'm going to let Andy get a little set up. Obviously, we had, uh, he had a meeting um, with uh, one of the contractors that we are working with on our boutique hotel project right now. So running a little bit late to the live stream, of course. Um, but uh, let's go ahead and dive on into the Nashville market. See what's going on here. Let me get Andy added in. So nation's building cells for 19.1 million. Uh, this is a building that is right across the street, actually from a project that we've been working on over off of Centennial Boulevard. It's uh, right next to Silo Bend called Silo Studios. So uh, it's a partnership led by commercial real estate firm Southeast Venture and Ryan Moses, um, who's actually a good buddy of mine. Uh, they bought uh, the 80,000 square foot office and retail complex located uh, right there at 5320 Centennial Boulevard. Uh, let's see, seller was South Carolina-based Flyway. Uh, of note, Southeast Venture redesigned the space of what had uh, been a lumber mill, uh, with the work having been completed in 2020. Nashville-based Dowdle Construction Group served as the project manager for Flyway. This is a really cool building. It's a great adaptive reuse. I've actually been in it with Ryan before. Uh, it's an absolutely beautiful building. They, they kept most of the original flooring. They actually kept a lot of the vaulted ceilings as well. So super cool. And that's a massive price, uh, price point right there. I mean, I don't know what that comes out to be on a price per square foot basis, but let's do the math. $19 million. Divided by 80,000, give or take. I mean, that's $240 a foot. And as far as I know, there's only one tenant. Okay, it actually says later in here, there's a couple of tenants. So there's F45 Fitness and Specialty Dental Brands. So they bought that on a per square foot basis, not based on a cap rate or anything else. Uh, looks like John Petty over at Southeast Venture is handling the marketing and the leasing. Uh, it's, again, a pretty cool building. Uh, Ryan has actually helped develop a lot of Silo Bend. Um, and, and much of the nation. So pretty exciting to see what's going on over here. Uh, that'll help us with our project across the street. Um, but uh, yeah, so Silo Bend, if you're not familiar with that, um, it is a 38-acre uh, development, uh, which Southeast Venture helped master plan um, alongside Ryan uh, and is named for the large mural adorned silo that rises on the site along the Cumberland River. Um, it has 103 condo units, 
uh, 49 single-family homes and townhomes, and a 193-unit apartment complex, uh, which I've also toured. It's really, really cool. Um, so, and a 165-unit um, condo building as well. So, yeah, there you have it. Um, for looks like we might have lost Andy there. Uh, for that one. All right, let's move on. This next one is also from the Nashville Post. Uh, Gulch Retail Building sells for $7.1 million. Uh, properties that include King Baby last changed hands for $1.05 million. This was a huge sale. Um, actually, a buddy of mine who I was out golfing with uh, was involved in this. It's funny, like, going through these articles and, and just grabbing some of the biggest news out of Nashville in the past week. And it happens to be a couple of your friends that are making making the headlines. Uh, the craziest part about this, so $7.1 million doesn't sound that crazy for Gulch property until you realize that it's 0.27 acres. I mean, 0.27 acres, that's tr- almost $30 million an acre uh, for that land right there. So it's, it's definitely... Um, setting a price per square foot record i would imagine it's it's got to uh but uh you know it's it's there it is entity seemingly based in san diego i'm glad i didn't say his name because <laughs> they said they didn't want to be named um but i mean look there you know when you're paying that price for a piece of dirt like that you're you have to do high density uh, there's just no other way around it so uh, expect to see something really cool right there. That's a part of, of, of the Gulch that hasn't really been fully developed yet. Um, in my opinion, there's a lot of really cool buildings and cool things going on over there, but they're all smaller, older, adaptive reuse buildings. You haven't had a whole lot of new development going on. Looks like the sellers were Mitchell and Michael Bender. Uh, the former owns and operates the King Baby business. The brothers paid $450,000 for that property in 2011 and $600,000 for the property at 611 9th in October of 2013. Based on acreage, the deal is the equivalent of about $354 per square foot. To put that in perspective, if y'all have been following me and some of the projects that we're doing, I bought uh, four and a half acres of land over off of Dickerson Pike with a few partners at $32 a square foot. So one-tenth the price. Let's see here. Lisa Mackey uh, brokered the deal for the binders. Congrats, Lisa. That's awesome. And it looks like King Baby's moving to 12 South. All right, moving on. This one is from the Nashville Business Journal. This is an exclusive fall construction start planned for nine-acre Newhoff project in Germantown. I've been anticipating this one for quite some time. Really excited about it. The developer that did this is out of Atlanta. They did one of the biggest projects that Atlanta has ever seen. So for them to come in and do a project very similar to this, very exciting. Uh, So the Newhoff is a former meatpacking site. It's in Germantown right on the river if you're not familiar with it. It looks like Jim Irwin, president of Atlanta's New City Properties, says his project team plans to break ground this fall on the four-block Newhoff development in East Germantown. Um, So another buddy of mine, actually Chad Grout, sold this last year, I want to say, for about $30 million. So it was a pretty, pretty amazing uh, feat to see. Uh, I mean, very well done by Chad. <laughs> That's every every broker wants to get a thirty million dollars sale. Uh, no official start date has been announced yet, but the total project costs are expected to hover around five hundred million dollars, um, which doesn't sound all that crazy considering how big this building is and also the scope of work. 
the nine-acre first phase will create two office buildings with retail space, one 15 stories and one five stories, and 542 residential units across two eight- and nine-story buildings, respectively. Um, pretty cool to see. Uh, let's see here if they go into anything else. Newhoff site marks the former home of a meat processing plant on the edge of the Cumberland River. Just across the water is East Bank. That's where Oracle announced their um, headquarters. Um, They're doing a 60-plus acre tech hub over there. Uh, There are rumors, somewhat confirmed, somewhat unconfirmed, that a bridge is going to be built from near the Newhoff site to near the Oracle site, uh, which would be very exciting to see. I mean, look, Nashville needs more bridges. That's one of the biggest constraints right now between the East Bank uh, and and the rest of Nashville. So, yeah, pretty cool. There we go. A couple more renderings there of a microbrewery space. Excited to see what's coming out of of Germantown. All right, let's move on to Market Watch. This week's market is a bit of a left turn from what we've typically been doing. You saw last week, um, we obviously took a left turn there. We've, we've typically been covering very positive growth uh, southeastern cities. So very specifically, kind of in the Sun Belt, I guess you could say, because we've also covered Austin and some other uh, Texas cities. Uh, but today, we are going to be diving into San Diego. So we're going back to our Urban Land Institute's uh, emerging trends in real estate uh, to get a little bit more on San Diego. So let's see here. San Diego overall real estate prospects. It is number 31 um, on this list of 80 cities, uh, which puts it, you know, about average um, for cities on the list. It's certainly not in the top, top tier by any means. Uh, in terms of home building prospects, they are number 24 behind Columbus, Long Island, and Miami. Miami's surprisingly low on that list. Let's see here. They uh, San Diego is considered a magnet city. It is uh, it's a magnet city, 18-hour city. So very similar. It's it's comparable to Austin, Charlotte, Denver, Minneapolis, Nashville. You know, San Diego is not a huge, it's not one of the biggest California cities. It is a very popular city. Uh, it's got a lot going for it. Let's dive into this article from Million Acres and see what they think of the 2021 San Diego real estate marketing investing forecast. Again, apologize for the noise. If you can hear, hear the drills and the hammering in the background. Again, that's just part of real estate, right? So known for its almost perfect climate, everybody that moves here from San Diego, that's the first thing they say. They're like, wow, it's so weird having seasons again. And also, I forgot what rain was. Uh, Miles of beaches and family attractions, San Diego appeals to a wide range of renters. And as a real estate investor, that gives you an opportunity to enjoy a healthy revenue stream. Here's what you need to know about investing in San Diego. Let's see. It's one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S. Uh, It has a moderate climate, parks, beaches, and attractions, which appeal to singles, families, retirees, and pretty much, I mean, there's nobody that 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 wouldn't appeal to. Uh, Let's see. Ivan Luther, Nashville is so lucky to have you doing this. I wish someone would do this for Northern California. I appreciate that, man. Um, Thank you so much. I'm I'm really excited to, to be doing this. I mean, we really enjoy the show. And uh, would love to be doing it even more uh, if, if we could fit it into the schedule a little bit more. So I appreciate the kind words. Thank you. 
Let's see. Uh, San Diego real estate market has faced many of the same challenges other cities have grappled with in the course of the pandemic. You know, of course, California got completely shut down. It was, it was a lot rougher there than it was in the southeast for sure. While the median home price in San Diego has risen substantially over the past year, that largely has to do with low supply and high buyer demand. That's very positive. That said, rent prices have risen nicely in San Diego over the past year, despite the general economic turbulence that's plagued the nation. I mean, San Diego is just such a phenomenal city. I don't know if you've ever been out there or spent some time there, but it's it's one of my favorite cities in the country. I mean, if I if I was going to move to California, it's hands down San Diego. Looks like they have high unemployment. Uh, jobless rate in San Diego sat at 8.1% compared to the national level of 6.3%. Uh, tourism is pretty big in San Diego, so that's not really a big surprise, um, which means that it could actually come roaring back. I mean, Nashville is starting to see that because Nashville is so tourism heavy and it stayed relatively open. I mean, we have been pedal to the metal since I'd say December. I mean, you go down to Broadway and it's like, it's like COVID never happened. I mean, hotels are booked up. Broadway's absolutely packed. There's lines everywhere to get in stuff. I've never seen so many pedal taverns in my life. I thought it was bad before the pandemic. I think people were just buying up uh, pedal taverns and building them and getting ready for, for the boom back. They're like following each other. There's pedal, pedal tavern trains now. Housing supply is very tight. As of uh, January 2021, there was only a month's worth of inventory on the market in San Diego. Now, that's a little bit more uh, inventory than Nashville has, which I think was like 0.6 or 0.7 of a month. Uh, but still, that we're talking about three weeks compared to four weeks of inventory. That is not very, that's not very much. And a healthy market, just so that you have this in perspective, is what? six months of inventory, four months of inventory. I mean, substantially larger than what we've got going on now. So, you know, it's that it's, t it's tough to go buy a home in any decent city right now. Uh, it seems like, uh, they're saying the good news is that housing supply is likely to improve as coronavirus vaccines roll out and things improve with regard to the pandemic. Ivan Luther's saying, yeah, San Diego is stunningly beautiful. I spent some time out there, Oh gosh, I guess it would have to be like six or seven years ago now. I need to get back out there and spend some more time. I was out there for a uh, for Hal Elrod's mastermind. He had the um, gosh, what was it called? Uh, it was a, it was like Blueprint Mastermind, and it was great. I ended up joining the mastermind because um, the 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 program was so great. And uh, that's actually that's how I ended up meeting Bruce Peterson. Long story, and and became buddies with uh, Brandon Turner over at Bigger Pockets was because I did that. So uh, there's a little nugget for you guys if you are thinking about joining masterminds or going to these real estate conferences. Highly recommend it because that made a huge difference uh, in my life, my career. Rental vacancies are high in San Diego. They have 8.5% vacancy rates, which represents a 5.1% increase year over year. That sounds really big because it is. But again, we got to take COVID into account. We had such a black swan event this past year. It's, it's you know, whenever we're looking at real estate data, you almost just get rid of 2020. I mean, it's kind of like you talk about what you did last year, but then you're like, oh, wait, that was actually 2019. You just kind of take that year out. Um. San Diego housing demand indicators, you know, okay. So we've kind of already covered all of that. Median home price is $655,000, which is a 9.2% increase year over year. That's insanely high. 
six fifty five compared to Nashville's like three fifty. And I think the national average is what, two fifty? Um, medium rent price is twenty three seventy five. That's also very high. But I mean, hey, it's San Diego. California. Uh, moving on to another article from the San Diego Union Tribune. San Diego home building off to a strong start in 21. Will it do anything for prices? San Diego home builders had one of their most productive quarters in years, with nearly 3,000 new homes constructed. But housing experts say it still doesn't come close to what is needed. Construction of all residential housing, which includes apartments, townhouses, and single-family homes, was up 22% from the first quarter of 2020 to the first quarter of 2021. That's a significant jump. Think about that. One-fifth. The comparison is colored by a slowdown in construction in March last year when the pandemic first hit, but the 2,830 new housing units is the highest quarterly total since the second quarter of 2018. Uh, It looks like if the current trends hold, San Diego could be on track to exceed previous yearly totals. That's pretty crazy. Let's see. Conservative estimates for how much new housing is needed based on population increases is 20,000 to 25,000 new homes a year. A year. That's wild. I mean, Nashville has like a, a deficit of thirty or thirty-five thousand affordable units, but it, it's been that way for it's been building up that way for years. Imagine every year it's going. Yeah, we need twenty thousand new more homes this year. Andy, how much bigger is San Diego than Nashville? Just so that we have like a Let's size find comparison. Out, Tyler. Yeah, will you look that up, please? Um, Diego's population is. 1.41 million. So that's just the city. So I'm going to look up the metro. So it's a little more than twice the size of Nashville, right? Metro is 3.3. Okay. So it's about two to three times the size of Nashville. So that's crazy that they have such a high demand for housing. twenty to 25000 a year. Let's see. On the positive side, the industry managed to keep building despite many obstacles. Um, Let's see. Community and political opposition to new housing as well as the added cost of regulations have been adding to those issues. Uh, Welcome to real estate. (laughs) You're always going to have community and political opposition and uh, very expensive regulations. That's uh, just an unfortunate part of what we do. Let's see. Uh, The increase was led by multifamily construction made up of apartments and for sale townhomes. There were 2,040 new multifamily units, representing a 76% increase from this same time last year. Single family home construction was down 32% with 790 homes. That's wild. I mean, just going through this article, it just continues to talk about how, I mean, how amazing how amazingly behind their housing market is and just how much demand they have. Um, pretty interesting to see, you know, cause like we think, I mean, we get into a bubble um, here in the Southeast United States saying, Oh, well, everybody's moving to the Southeast United States. It's so easy to see everybody's moving to Nashville, Austin, Charlotte, Atlanta. And then you will get a city like San Diego where, you know, we would all very easily say, and kind of just write off California say, yeah, everybody's leaving California and, and moving to Nashville. Well, you clearly have a substantial amount of people that are moving to San Diego and they could be from other places in California, but they, you know, they could be from all over the United States. 
I mean, San Diego is just one of those magnetic cities that because of the weather, it's just tough to beat. And do you have anything else you want to add on uh, on San Diego? No, Tyler, I think you pretty much covered it well. I mean, it's a, you know, of the cities in California, and this is why we we stress and we cover each of these local markets. It's like every, every market is local, right? Uh, even if there's an outflow in California in general, that certain cities within California still are doing very well. San Diego seems to be one of them. Yep, that's exactly right. Look, just because California is doing bad doesn't mean every single city in California is doing bad. All right, cool. Let's move on to the future of commercial real estate. These are the articles that we think uh, kind of show how the world of commercial real estate is changing. So I, I teased this one a little bit uh, in the intro that office lease terms are getting longer after wave of short-term renewals during COVID, but flexibility is still key. This is from the national, or not national, but this is from the Business Journal. So we talked about this quite a bit um, early on. Uh, about how leases were going to be impacted by COVID. I mean, everybody thought, okay, well, the new the new thing to do is short term leases, and you got to have flexibility, and maybe you just won't even do leases at all. Well, we're starting to see, and I've seen this across our portfolio. I mean, we own over a half million square feet of real estate, in mostly in Middle Tennessee, but some in Chattanooga, and tenants are going for five and ten year leases. I mean, they want them, which, you know, is a little surprising, but not too much. Um, just considering the the overall climate, I mean, the terms of the deal haven't changed just because of COVID, right? I mean, if you if you want to get more rent abatement on your lease because you're going to have to spend more money, well, you're going to sign a longer term so that you have the surety of, you know, getting your investment back, right? So it's just a negotiation tool. And also you lock in your rental rates, right? You kind of have an idea of what you're, you have some certainty as to what you'll be paying for the next 10 years instead of the next five, and then having a 30% increase in your rent. It happens all the time. I've seen it. Let's see. Most office leasing activity since the COVID-19 pandemic has been renewals and short-term extensions as companies took a wait and see approach about the future of their space needs. In mid-2021, many companies are still not totally sure what their space requirements will look like with hybrid, the new buzzword. Hey, hybrid, corporate synergy. <laughs> I love buzzwords. <laughs> um, in mid-2020, oh, I just read that. The situation is improving, but we're still not back to normal, said Phil Ryan, U.S. Office Research Director at JLL. Those tracking the office industry report an uptick in longer-term deals being signed. Nationally, the average lease signed in the second quarter of 2021 had 7.4 years of term. With that, 7.4 years. That means you're taking the average of one-year terms, three-year terms, 20-year terms, etc. I mean, 7.4 years average lease is very long. Uh, and that's an increase of 7.1 years from Q1 2021 and 6.7 years at the end of 2020. I mean, that's a huge jump of over a year jump in just the last few months, right? And the average, I mean, let's keep in mind, this is the average. Uh, now going into 2020, so before the pandemic hit, the average term length was 8.9 years. So we're still a lot shorter than we were before we went into COVID, but it's starting to trend back up towards longer leases. In the New York metro, historically a market with longer leases, 
Renewals averaged 9.9 years in term length in the 2019 compared to 6.8 years in 2020 and 7.9 years year to date. So again, it dipped and now it's going back up. Everybody was just signing these shorter terms because nobody knew it was going to happen. Why sign a long lease if you don't know if you're even going to be in business in the next you know, few months? Between April and December 2020, 54% of renewals in New York that were larger than 15,000 square feet had lease terms of five years or less. Even some large Manhattan leases signed last year, such as NBC Universal's 340,000 square foot renewal and Struk and Struk and Laven's 191,000 square foot deal, were short term. So far in 2021, the proportion of short term renewals in the New York market has been reduced to 32%. Pretty interesting. So everybody was, you know, kind of kicking that can two to three years down the road is what they're saying here. I mean, again, they just people just wanted to take a step back and wait and see what was going on. They just wanted to know what was happening. Looks like CBRE in June was tracking 90 active office tenants, each seeking 50,000 square feet or more in Manhattan. In April of 2020, there were only 17 such tenants in the market, down from 133 the month prior. So it's not certain whether lease term averages will ever return to pre-pandemic levels, uh, but the market today remains tenant favorable. And flexibility, including term length, is key. Uh, that helps with negotiating renewals, expansions, or new deals. I mean, we're, we're working on deals that are very different from what we were working on before. It's, you know, hey, um, we're not going to give you any build out, but we're willing to do one, two, three year terms, right? I mean, tenants are willing to come in and spend a little money on paint and carpet if they feel like they, you know, if they're going to benefit from better, more flexibility, right? I mean, in my opinion, it just works out better that way. There should be no just, hey, we only signed five year leases. Well, every case is totally different. I mean, you've got different tenants, you've got different landlords, things change, right? So, um, I think it's I think it's important to to keep in mind that every lease is completely negotiable. We talk about that all the time. Everything in a lease is negotiable. Moving on to an article from BizNow, Miami CRE on what condo collapse means for the market. I don't know if y'all have seen this story at all, but it's absolutely crazy. This building in uh, in Miami uh, just just fell. Um, I mean. It, it was crazy to see it fell. I mean, it killed like I think 150 people, and they ended up having to go in and demo the tower because they was it in Miami? I know it's in South Florida, but was it in Miami? Technically Surfside, but yes, it's a Miami suburb. Okay, so okay, Miami suburb. So I mean, look at that damage there. That's that's just from when it fell, right? Like the building just collapsed, um, and then they had to. They only gave. Well, I mean, I don't even think they gave the residents the ability, to, the opportunity to go in there and collect any of their belongings. People just had to get out. Um, so they had to actually demo the building within a few days because of the the hurricane that was coming in. They couldn't have that standing and, and taking even more damage. So uh, let's see. Ahead of uh, So the collapse is likely to affect the market in a myriad of ways. Pre prefacing their comments with sympathy for those affected by the tragedy, here are some thoughts that were shared. Uh, in the short term, fear is likely to have some effect. CRE professionals agreed. Um, I mean, of course. The, the collapse appears to be an extremely exceptional case with signs that pointed to problems. So there's a very good chance that somebody's going to be brought to justice for this because it looked to me like 
there were some signs that should have gotten fixed that just never did. Um, it will be natural for people to be worried about other buildings. I would imagine a bunch of HOAs in the area are going to be doing building inspections to make sure that they are going to be safe, that their foundations do not have any problems. Uh, this could soften the condo market in Surfside in South Florida where the tragedy hit closer to home. Uh, let's see. Looks like they got an attorney, Howard Vogel, to comment. He specializes in condominium law, predicted that the tragedy will prompt owners at older coastal condos to sell their units to developers who will pursue terminations of those structures, demolish them, and build brand new buildings. I mean, that's that's a pretty good pretty good way to get out of that, right? I mean, because you, if people are now scared of older condominiums in the area because of the structural issues, I mean, selling to a developer is going to be your best way out unless you're just going to live there. Uh, now, I, w- I do want to say, look, this is very rare, right? Like foundations don't normally give way because there are so many checks and balances uh, along the process, right? You've got you know, a contractor has to be licensed and bonded. The bank is going to check that. The bank is going to send up their own inspector in order to finance the project. The In order to get uh, permits, you're going to have to have codes come out and inspect the property at multiple points along the way. I mean, the the chances of this stuff happening are just so slim. And then you typically see a there are numerous signs that something is structurally not right with a building before anything like this ever happens. So, I mean, if you see any cracks in the foundation, just so, you know, for anybody listening that's curious, because it's one of the first things that I look at whenever I go out and inspect a property. If you see any cracks that are a quarter inch or wider, then that is worth inspecting. Anything smaller than that is natural, right? Concrete has moisture in it. It's going to shrink, which means that there are just going to be natural crack points. Um, same with, you know, like wood, right? Like wood has a bunch of moisture. It dries out, which means it's going to crack a bunch of the drywall just because it shrinks. So some cracking is very normal. Again, anything over a quarter inch, I would say get inspected. Developers looking for redevelopment opportunities often target older coastal buildings that are nearing the 40 year recertification stage. I wonder what the recertification stage is. It may be a, uh, Florida thing. Papa's predicted yeah. that the it is okay. They have to get their buildings certified every four years to make sure they stand up to code. Oh yeah, yeah, I guess because you're getting hit by hurricanes every now and then, right? So they've got to be able to withstand that power. Yep, yep that makes sense. Um, let's see. Long-term trends are driving demand. However, there will be undoubtedly be an increase in buyers doing more investigation before moving forward with purchases. Florida law requires all buyers to receive condominium documents and provides for a three-day rescission period of for the buyers after receiving the documents. All condominium owners can request financial records and meeting minutes at any time. Uh, they're predicting that there will be stricter regulations, um, which there should be, right? I mean, you know, the, the, problems, the problem with... Uh, this honestly comes down to HOAs. I mean, I would imagine the HOA probably saw some sort of issue with this and just decided, hey, we don't have it in the budget. We're not going to worry about it. We're not going to inspect it because we don't want to know what's going on. I mean, all of that, that's what leads to this kind of stuff, unfortunately. And you've got people that don't necessarily know that that are operating an HOA. What are we going to say, Andy? 
Yeah, Tyler. I was actually I'm going to cover more on this in the wild card section. So we'll we'll cover more about everything that happened here. But you know, just to echo what you're saying is, you know, you can't just real estate is not a game. This is where people live. So people need to make sure that they're taking care of the people inside. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay, moving on to an article from Globe Street. Let's see. Goodbye, 80s Mall. Hello, Town Center. Here's what's next for U.S. malls. I mean, town centers have been popping up left and right in these older malls. Um, You look at the one Bellevue Place redevelopment um, here in Nashville. It was one of the biggest redevelopments in Nashville at the time. It was probably like top three in the southeast at the time, I think. Um, So, you know, look, there's a lot of malls out there that it's time for them to to get uh, turned over. Mixed-use properties are commanding higher rents, according to CoStar study of 37 malls. Several mall owners and retailers have reported strong growth over the last quarter as the era of the standard 80s-style mall comes to an end, and a new model of malls functioning as town centers comes into vogue. I mean, it just makes sense if you think about it. I'm surprised that like the 80s-style mall even really thrived as much as it did, but I guess it's because people were living so far in the suburbs that like that was a cool town center to, to go hang out at. And like, you didn't go downtown because downtown wasn't really cool back then. So it's interesting to see how now that people are starting to move into more urban areas, like what used to be the, you know, quote unquote, like suburban hub is now going away. Uh, a new retail market outlook from JLL looks bright for some companies, at least. And a winner seems to be Simon property group, which inked 1100 leases totaling 4.4 million square feet in the first quarter. Way to go, Simon Property Group. That's a lot. Uh, SPG's leasing volume exceeded the same periods in 2019 and 2020. Uh, people want to be in malls. Active retailers include American Eagle, Levi's, Urban Outfitters, as well as Prada, Louis Vuitton, and Warby Parker. In keeping with the mall as a town center trend, SPG is also converting part of the vacant Sears in Burlington, Massachusetts, into an upscale dining hall to include Fogo de Chow, Parm, Bennett Sandwich Shop, and Shake Shack. The location is slated to open this fall. I mean, it's it's not surprising. You're going for more of that experiential type of product. How can you get people to want to come hang out at the mall, right, other than just shop? I mean, people don't want to just go somewhere and necessarily shop. They want to go have a whole experience. It's like, hey, Let's go down to the Green Hills Mall. We'll grab a Starbucks coffee. We'll walk around. We'll check out the Apple Store because it's so crazy. And then we'll grab dinner at, you know, the Italia or whatever that restaurant's called. I mean, it's people want to kind of or, or go to the new um, restoration hardware. I guess it's several years old now. But, you know, they want to go have these experiences at these locations. And they want to do some shopping while they do that, right? I mean, it's kind of a, hey, let's just go pass some time. Let's go entertain ourselves. Let's see. Looks like the Sun Belt is emerging as the definitive leader in retail performance. So, obviously, Nashville, the Southeast, Texas, part of the Sun Belt. Uh, Nordstrom reported strong growth, a 44% increase in net sales year over year. That's amazing. And its stores across the South performed 7 to 10 percentage points better than their counterparts up North. Also amazing. Of particular interest is what shoppers are buying. There has been a noticeable boost in sales for dresses, handbags, and makeup, a clear hallmark that consumers are looking forward to gathering socially once again. Yeah, Andy, have you stocked up on your dresses, your handbags, and your makeup this year? 
I actually only bought three handbags this year, so I'm looking to add probably four or five more by the end. <laughs> so you're ready for you're ready. You've been socially distancing. You're ready for some social gathering now. It's, All right. It's my hot back summer. <laughs> it's yeah, hot boy summer. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh man, overall mall development remains low at four million square feet. Wow, that's like one mall. Um, most of these projects are redevelopment deals or mixed use additions. I mean, of course it is. Nobody wants to build a traditional mall anymore, right? It's it's not cool. Um, awesome. Well, I love that. I mean, it look it, a lot of the way that real estate has been developed over the last 30, 40, 50 years has been because we just, we didn't look at cities the right way. And now that we're starting to change how we look at cities, there's going to be a whole lot of adaptive projects or just complete teardowns that are going to be built to accommodate our new lifestyles. I mean, think about it. We are living in more urban locations. We're living in areas where it's walkable. We can go, you know, I can walk down the street to some really great restaurants and bars. I can walk down the street to some shopping. I don't need to go out of my way, get in my car, drive 15 minutes to the mall to go do that. So, you know, now you've got to give consumers a different reason to want to hang out at your place. And and there's a couple of malls that have done a phenomenal job of doing that. All right, let's move on to private equity deal dive. Let's see what some of the biggest private equity deals uh, around the, I mean, really the world, but most likely this country uh, are going on. Let's see where that's going this week. Uh, According to Globestreet.com, Ventas to acquire new senior investment group in $2.3 billion deal. Senior living is a very, I would imagine that's what they mean. New, never mind. This has nothing to do with senior living, I don't think. <laughs> okay. $2.3 billion transaction gives Ventas an independent living portfolio in advantaged markets with positive supply-demand fundamentals. Never mind. Yes, it does have to do with, with some sort of senior living. I was just about to say, I think senior living is about to come roaring back. I mean, it took a massive hit last year um, just because you had a very vulnerable crowd. But gosh, it's the it, people aren't getting younger, right? I mean, you've got a massive baby boomer population that's going to want this kind of housing. Ventas will acquire new senior investment group in an all-stock transaction valued at approximately $2.3 billion, including $1.5 billion of new senior debt. With the acquisition of new seniors' 12,400-plus units, Ventas is getting a geographically diversified portfolio of 103 private pay senior living communities, including 102 independent living communities. It spans 36 states in the United States. That's cool. That's a, that's a huge acquisition. New senior shareholders will receive 0.1561 shares of newly issued Ventas stock per share of new senior common stock. That comes out of approximately that comes out to approximately nine dollars and ten cents per new senior share, a thirty-one percent equity premium based on its thirty-day trading average, and a ten percent premium on its total enterprise value. Again, the reason that you're seeing premiums going for all of these uh, groups is that these firms were sitting on the sidelines hoarding cash when. 2020 hit. They were expecting to be able to go buy up massive portfolios of distressed commercial real estate. That opportunity never arrived. So now they're going out and they're paying premiums to acquire all of these other firms just so that they can spend that capital 
get it into the market at play and expand that way, right? So maybe they weren't able to go out and buy 12,000 plus units, but they bought a firm that had 12,000 plus units. So that worked out well for them. Let's see, Vintas anticipates that the transaction will be approximately $0.09 cents to $0.11 cents accretive to its normalized funds from operations per share on a full-year basis. It is also expected to represent roughly a 6% cap rate on expected new senior 2022 net operating income. I mean, that sounds like a pretty decent deal, a 6 cap for that type of product. The transaction provides Ventas shareholders with an attractive valuation and accretion and further positions us to win the recovery, said Ventas chairman and CEO. Let's see. The portfolio includes nearly eight includes 80 nearly identical independent living and six combinations of independent living and assisted living properties. Upon the closing date of this transaction, expected to be in the third quarter of 2021, Atria Senior Living will assume operations of the properties and retain holidays in place, senior management and staff. Andy, can you imagine the amount of due diligence you would have to do to pull off the acquisition of 12,400 units? I would need more than one analyst, Tyler. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going through the process of hiring Andy, a, a second analyst right now. Because we've got too much going on. It's like, yeah, you would have to have like four or five analysts to be able to take down a project like that. It's just so much work. The price tag of $1.58 billion represents a 30% discount to the estimated replacement cost. That's cool. According to Welltower, the REIT says the transaction is expected to be approximately 10 Oh, wait, this is... Yeah. Okay. Uh, 10 cents per diluted share accretive to its normalized funds from operations during the first 12 months post-closing. Investors remain bullish on senior housing and care investments. Yes, they should. We anticipate market fundamentals to steadily improve and the market to restabilize between two and four years, depending on the location. I, I agree with that. I mean, I think, again, senior living, pretty, it's not going anywhere. Uh, this next article is from BizNow. Senior housing execs see light at end of dark pandemic tunnel. I like how they added in dark pandemic tunnel as if, as if the, the tunnel wasn't dark enough. A slew of coronavirus-related deaths at U.S. nursing homes last year disrupted the senior housing development space for a short period of time. For developers and investors in the segment, it was a 180-degree flip from the high times the industry was in before the pandemic took the lives of hundreds of thousands of U.S. seniors. Even today, senior housing is trying to regain its foothold in the midst of rising construction costs, inflating health care staffing expenses, and its potential residents' fear of being, struck, or, sorry, and being stuck in large group settings when illnesses erupt. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be so tough trying to manage these kinds of assets right now. The whole model was called into question, and we had front page above the fold headlines about the horrors of what were happening in quote-unquote senior housing, which was painted with a really broad brush to include everything from active adult all the way to skilled nursing, which in our business we don't really consider senior housing. It's long-term care, uh, says Capital Seniors Housing founder and managing partner Scott Stewart. 
Let's see. Stewart said reports of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's alleged mishandling of nursing home patients during the pandemic didn't help the perception of the danger in the industry and resulted in at least a temporary loss of residents and investment and development momentum. Um, let's see here. We get it. It's obviously there was some doom and gloom. Let's get back into where it's starting to pick up. Collier's Vice President Elena Bikina said, like all housing types, there was a definite preference for suburban sites and facilities that cost less to run in terms of staffing and operational requirements. If you look at current development, it's going more towards the suburbs, but the investors are looking in urban and suburban communities as well. Investment volumes have dropped during the pandemic, but Bikina said she's optimistic it will rebound and lead to more sales volume towards the end of the year. She said she still sees healthy investor interest for assisted living, uh, independent living, or active adult communities. Purchase volumes for skilled nursing, on the other hand, are significantly depressed, with some geographic areas seeing volumes down as much as 30%. That's crazy. It's quite the drop. Um, yeah, so there you have it for senior housing. I mean, that's... Uh, well, we've got for private equity deal dive. I would I would say, you know, like if you're interested in senior housing at all, now is probably a good time to be jumping into it. Especially, I mean, like whenever I see any sort of massive sell off in the market, you you have a product that's at a thirty percent discount compared to last year. That's probably a pretty good time to buy because, I mean, again, you look at the fundamentals of senior housing. It's not like suddenly we're not going to have people who are who need somewhere to age, right? I mean, that's a product that will need to come. So uh, keep an eye on senior housing. Let's dive into prop tech. All right. So what do we got going on today? Um, I teased this one at the, at the beginning of the show as well. Talking about AI, it's been interesting to see the effect that AI has had on commercial real estate. So this one is the AI powered secret sauce fueling Oxford property groups, new investments. One of North America's largest pension-backed real estate companies has been privately developing artificial intelligence that quantifies the value of a property down to every tree, blade of grass, and speck of dirt in an effort to drive smarter investment decisions. That's wild, and it's, I mean, that's, it's only a matter of time before that actually takes over how we value commercial real estate or real estate in general. Commercial is a little bit more difficult just because of the nature of it, but re residential could be quantified like that, which is wild. Oxford Property Groups, which has a $62 billion, 150 million square foot real estate portfolio, has created what it calls Project Alpha, an AI-powered technology that uses information from around 50 data sets to create models of properties and markets around the globe. Oxford, which developed the technology in-house along with Australian portfolio company Investa Property Group, says Project Alpha is the first technology that quantifies this level of detail for not just a property itself, but also the environment around it. That's pretty cool. So they're taking into account the neighborhood, you know, what kind of shopping's around it. What are there any natural, uh, you know, is there a river nearby? Is there a mountain nearby? I mean, all of that stuff matters when you're looking at real estate, right? I mean, if you looked at a city like uh, Chattanooga and you see, okay, well, this downtown core is actually constrained by these two ridges, which means that the downtown core can only be built up so much, you probably would have started buying it, you know, five, 10 years ago, right? Because you know that downtown, it's only a matter of time before it takes off. So having that kind of data, um, of course, helps, especially if you're not in that market. 
there are clearly indicators that say a piece of dirt at a particular location has a certain amount of value, regardless of what's in it. On top of that, there are certain things that you can do to that piece of dirt that will make it worth more. I mean, of course, you go through highest and best use, right? Rezoning, entitlements, et cetera, et cetera. Hopkins, who had spent 25 years working in the industry in the technology sector as a startup founder and technology company executive, as well as a technology advisor, uh, described the system as a mix of the type of market-level information the Bloomberg terminal holds combined with the data science of a quantum model, but for property investment instead of the stock market. Andy has been all over quantum models here recently, (laughs) talking about getting a computer or something like that that can compute that. We need a quant. Didn't we? Haven't we gotten a couple quants that applied for the analyst job? Some MSFs, but Tyler, I need to be able to walk into a deal room, just like in what's that movie, The Big Short, and say, "This is my quant." (laughs) He doesn't even speak English. That's what we want. He doesn't even speak English, dude. He he just he speaks in numbers, actually. Yeah. Uh, Project Alpha places numerical value on aspects of a potential investment that would otherwise be otherwise opaque by reconstructing digital twins of the environment surrounding buildings in addition to twins of the structures themselves. All right. Uh, we're building algorithms and hunting for pieces of software that are using the data to inform our teams about where to look. Now you don't have to hunt the entire forest. We're going to tell you these very specific parts of the forest and give you real confidence and conviction. That could be interesting. I'm sure they're going to bring that to market for like a million dollars a year. Project Alpha's technology has propelled the company's life sciences venture, which it calls Project Warp Speed internally. They've got a lot of projects. Oxford has acquired around 1.2 million square feet in life sciences investments across six deals in the United States so far this year. Okay, let's get into Project Alpha's technology was used to guide the purchase of a 136,000 square foot office building. Uh, in Seattle for $119 million, which is set to be converted to a life sciences use. People were like, huh, a life sciences deal in Seattle. That's kind of interesting. Uh, and it's because when we modeled it, we said, oh, something really special is going on in Seattle, and we can tell exactly where in Seattle and why in Seattle. That's interesting. Um The secret sauce that led Oxford to make the deal is the technology evaluates every inch of a building's land and surroundings in order to aid in investment decisions. Yeah, but how? How does it do it? Let's see. As we start aggregating this base intelligence layer, the data that underpins all these models, we start to see things that we didn't even know that we didn't know, and we start to overlay the data. Um, Okay. Okay, but it's not really, I mean, I want to know how and why this works. It doesn't really look like they're going to go, they don't really go into how it works or why it works or what it helps you understand better, which, I mean, look, it makes sense, right? They've got a technology they probably don't want you to know. They just want you to know that they're doing it. They don't want you to know uh, even what it takes into account. But, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, look, it's, AI, artificial intelligence, is the future of commercial real estate because it will help you make better decisions. It's, it's the future of anything and everything, right? Because at the end of the day, we can make computers that are leagues and bounds smarter uh, than humans, right? And so 
for a computer to be able to go make that decision, analyze thousands of properties and tell you which one to buy, uh, would be much easier than you sitting there trying to research thousands of properties on your own. So pretty exciting stuff. Uh, looking forward to seeing how that really impacts the market. Numbers are magic, Tyler. Yeah, they really are. Numbers are magic. Yeah. They're, numbers are confusing. I don't get them, man. <laughs> All right, let's move on to reading REITs. This is Andy's favorite sector of the day, of course, other than the wild card. Today, we are talking about healthcare REITs. How has the vaccine impacted healthcare REITs? So this is from Seeking Alpha. Left for dead early in the pandemic, the prognosis for healthcare REITs has improved dramatically over the several quarters as coronavirus cases have been all but eradicated in U.S. senior housing facilities. Senior housing REITs, the hardest hit subsector, have led the recovery as occupancy rates appear to have bottomed in early 2021, benefiting from the red hot and undersupplied housing market. Cut and run or ante up. While Health Peak has completed its exit from the senior housing sector to focus on medical office and lab space, Well Tower and Ventas, who we talked about earlier, are doubling down with major acquisitions. Yes, they are. The pandemic dramatically altered patterns of outpatient healthcare delivery and advancements in telemedicine, and remote work trends have clouded the demand outlook for medical office REITs. Driven by the aging baby boomers and trillions of dollars in savings and built-up home equity, the fundamentals remain particularly compelling over the coming decade for senior housing REITs. I mean, I would say, look, medical space isn't going anywhere anytime soon because it's such a sp- – I mean, come on. you imagine how expensive it would be to have your doctor drive to your house every time you have the flu? Uh, it's just – it's not worth it, and the scalability is not there. Uh, but – it does. I mean, telemedicine is going to have some sort of an impact. But then again, you think about it, it's like, okay, well, telemedicine, they have to have call centers. They likely have to mm-hmm. have call centers, right? So they're now they're going to be leasing office space instead of medical space. So I don't know. It's just a shift. Andy, what charts did you want to dive into? Let's go three down to the health and wellness ecosystem. That one. Yeah, zoom in on that. So this one just gives you an overview in general of what the the types of buildings that these REITs measure. On the left, you have you know the most intense from hospital and specialty inpatient care. In the middle, you have long-term care, skilled nursing care facilities. And then on the right, you have senior housing with um, from memory care, assisted living, independent living, and you know living at home services. So there's actually quite a wide range of things that fall into medical REITs. And this article specifically focuses mostly on senior housing, but even within senior housing, you know, there's ones where, you know, you're having memory problems and you need a lot of support. There's ones where you just, you know, need help going up and down the stairs and, and that kind of stuff. And then there's ones where, you know, like the 55 plus active communities where people just want to be kind of around other folks who are older as well, but, you know, still have all their capabilities. So there's a lot of wide ranges in the kind of senior care facilities, which is a nuance that I just wanted to tease out for you guys. Um, further down, the next the next art, uh, chart I think is really interesting, the population chart. Look at that. So that's 80 plus population growth. So this is, you know, by year, 
the U.S. population over 80. So for the last 10 years or so, it's kind of been about the same, just, you know, about 12 to 14 million. Over the next 10 years, I mean, that thing is going to get to like almost double from where it is today in 10 or 15 years, almost up to 24 million from 12 or 13 million. So it's kind of nuts how the baby boom population, I mean, you can see it right there. I mean, you're going to need 10 million more senior housing spaces. I think the market and the population kind of just speaks for itself in terms of what's going to happen there. Uh, let's yeah, go further right. down. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of kind of crazy how many more people are going to be <laughs> going to be older. I'm good. Let's scroll down actually quite a bit to there's healthcare REITs 101. It's probably about three quarters of the way down after this one. Healthcare REITs 101. Yes. Oh, we went too far. Too far. Okay. Yes. Up a little bit. There we go. Yeah. On this one, uh, just kind of in general to for you all to understand what healthcare REITs look like. Typically a higher dividend, right? Because it's more quote unquote stable. We talked about how COVID was really the biggest factor in making this unstable but you know that's why potentially has a good buying opportunity right now people are obviously we just covered in the private equity section how they're obviously investing a lot of money into this growth rate pretty low interest rate sensitivity is pretty high but the economic sensitivity is low because again it's really driven more by fundamentals than anything else and then there are a couple fun facts that the u.s spends 18 percent of their GDP on healthcare up from 10% in 1980, which is why healthcare costs are so high. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and but it's, it's not unlikely that that's going to be going down anytime soon. And the majority of lifetime healthcare occurs at ages 80 plus, which is exactly the population that they're targeting here. So that's just a cool thing to understand about healthcare REITs. And I actually want to look at the next chart two, Tyler, just as a kind of a final stopping point of why, you know, when we've already covered the whole behind the picture, behind the scenes picture of the fundamentals, but you can kind of see here of the 2010s was a decade of underbuilding. I mean, look at the average, that blue line across the middle. Yeah, the, the post-World War II average. I mean, that's not just a, that's not just like a 20-year average. That is a 70 80 year average and then it just falls right after 2009 you know that thing gets cut over in half and we're just starting to get back the thing is you know even if it gets to the same average we're still going to be behind in order to catch up that's how it works right you have to get above the average to bring us back to what the average was and the average, even if we were building on that average, it wouldn't be enough to count for the population growth because we have so many more people, right? So that is why both in multifamily, single family homes and in senior housing, people are so bullish on these sectors because, I mean, just look at it. There's just not enough houses being built and we've underbuilt for the last 10, 12, 13 years 
and we could overbuild for the next 10 years and still only be back to average. So that's just kind of a unique perspective as well to have for the housing market there. Yeah, that's that's correct. I mean, it makes it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's it's become more and more complex to build than it ever has been for for both good and bad reasons, right? I mean, of course, we want codes that protect people, but you know, there's a bunch of regulation out there and funding that just doesn't make any sense. So it's um, it's. I mean, look, we're looking at the consequences of of a lot of that happening. I mean, in 2009, a lot of stuff changed. Right, a lot of the laws and regulations governing mortgages changed. Not all of that was good stuff, right? Most of it was, but some of it didn't really make any sense, or at least doesn't to me. But anyway, moving on to the best, certainly not least, <laughs> last but certainly not least, maybe the best segment on the show. Andy, what do you got for us for the wild card today? Well, I want to thank everybody again, Tyler, for sticking around to the end of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly show where we try to bring you guys the latest and best news in commercial real estate. In the wildcard section, I always, at the end of every show, try to cover a unique perspective, something that's different in the real estate industry. This one is a little bit more somber, as we alluded to earlier. This one is about that Surfside condo collapse in Miami and on the initial section where we covered in the kind of the future of CRE, we kind of covered the, we kind of covered the, you know, what does this mean for the real estate market element? And in this section today, I kind of wanted to cover for you all a little bit of the human element. Obviously, we had 94 people die, right? And there's still 30, 40 people missing who we don't, you know, there's, there's virtually no hope of finding them, right? Because they know pretty much for sure that they were in the condo. They just haven't been able to recover their bodies because of all that stuff that happened. And if you guys read any of the stories about the survivors of the condo who ran out, literally it happened within maybe five or 10 minutes. They heard something cracking down the wall and then they grabbed some stuff and they ran out of the building. And then 10 minutes later, the building was gone. So that is to highlight there and not to be too dark, right? But, you know, there are a lot of people died. Obviously, there are people injured. You know, we've had children in there who, who died as well. I, one of the uh, one of the people who died was actually a Vanderbilt student. I went to Vanderbilt and he was a rising senior and he was one of, you know, I didn't know him personally, Andreas, but a lot of my underclassmen friends knew him and they they knew that he was you know lost in the in the building here so i bring all this to highlight kind of what i brought up for tyler earlier is is that real estate is not you know a game it's fun and it's good and it's important uh to look at the numbers and the investment side but one of the fundamental reasons why both tyler and i do this is because it has such an impact on people's lives. It has a potential to impact and create good communities, uh, give people opportunities for new businesses, give people abilities to start a home, right? To raise a family where this, uh, you know, condo tower ostensibly was doing, right? So in that sense, you know, real estate goes beyond just, you know, any traditional investment vehicle where you can have a serious and direct impact on people's lives. 
And that is such an important thing to recognize when we put it in context of groups like that HOA, which it, there have been several reports that they knew about the damage, but they didn't want to pay for it, right? And yes, there's a financial burden there. Nobody wants to pay for new condo assessments. How those condo assessments work is that when something happens uh, that a condo association needs to pay for, they'll usually have a special assessment. All the owners of a condo building are going to have to pay some money in order to get that, let's say a roof needs to be replaced. They'll all have to pay XYZ amount of money to all pitch in and pay for the roof, right? Because they're all partial owners and they all benefit from the roof. So no one wants to do that. But there are some points in time where they said, apparently this building even had, you know, exposed rebar, right? The rebar was out in the middle, visible, right? And massive concrete cracking. It's, it's like you've got to, you know, put that financial burden aside for a second and realize, you know, people are going to be hurt. And Tyler mentioned it before, this doesn't happen very often. There are regulations and rules about it in place to prevent this sort of thing. But if you don't try to stay on top of it, this is the stuff that happens. And it's not just this one building. Apparently, now that they're really reviewing it, they're seeing a lot of problems, right? The Miami-Dade courthouse was evacuated. There were, which was originally built in 1928, right? They've evacuated a bunch of other condo buildings here, right? There's another condo building that was evacuated on July 3rd. And then there's 10 more buildings that they think are severe enough to probably potentially be evacuated pretty soon. So these things and the understanding of, you know, being able to maintain and keep up our buildings, especially in the face of a place like Miami, right, where we talk about how um, the seawater and the salt and the hurricanes, and this is not just going to be happening in Miami, this is going to be happening in every place along the coast, right, where you have to be very, very diligent about protecting, maintaining these buildings and holding them to a higher standard. It's, it's going to, it's going to need to happen, right? They said corroded rebar and rotted concrete in the condo basement have been released, you know, three years ago in 2018. These are the types of regulations that I think are bound to happen and to make sure that people are actually following up on this. And I think anybody would agree, this is the type of stuff that people need to be made aware of and need to be tracked and need to be on top of, right? This is, again, you know, not to be a, a a Debbie Downer and talk about, you know, the, the, the tragedy as it is. But if, you know, we don't hold ourselves as real estate professionals, people in the industry to a higher standard, stuff like this can potentially happen again. And I think everybody wants to prevent something like this from ever happening again. So I wanted to kind of highlight the importance of thinking about that aspect, understanding there are economic constraints, but to see sometimes there probably is some good regulation to this level to keep people and buildings safe, right? This is why building codes exist. It's for this reason. They are a pain in the butt. A lot of times we hate them and dealing with codes and dealing with building permits and it's very slow, it's very tedious. But 
in certain instances like this, this is where they are actually very appropriate and probably especially in these coastal areas that are in the path of environmental problems, right? And Miami's no, now knowing there's probably 10, 11, 12, 13 buildings that might be due to collapse any at any minute. It's something that we're really going to have to pay a lot of attention to and anybody thinking about investing, especially in these areas where you can get hit by hurricanes, you have solid damage, flooding damage that should definitely be aware of. So that's all I wanted to cover on that, Tyler, uh, just to kind of briefly just remind people of, you know, why we're in the business and why it's meaningful to be able to work in something that affects lives and neighborhoods and all of that. But to, re to remember that it's, you know, a meaningful, <laughs> it's really when you are affecting people's lives, you have to have a high quality of standard of care in all the projects that you're trying to do and really stay on top of it and provide the best thing possible for people, which is what we try to hold ourselves to as that standard. And hopefully uh, more people will start to do the same after this. Yeah, that's a great reminder, Andy. I mean, <clears throat> it, it starts at every level of the process too, right? I mean, yeah, maybe in the beginning, it's the developer and the contractor, um, and then, but later on in the process, it's the home inspectors, right? It's people that are inspecting the process afterwards. It's, it's the HOA that is maintaining it. It's, it's the people who are coming in and renovating the property after it's been constructed. There's so many touch points in a project where, where that is, that is critical. I mean, it's incredibly important, um, that you take that into account, right? I mean, look, we're all here to make money at the end of the day, right? I mean, some of us do this, you know, if you're able to get into affordable housing more for passion, but still that's, you're still making money to do that. Um, and without the money, you can't do the projects and, and, uh, you gotta, you gotta do everything right. Um, at the end of the day is, is really just the best way of looking at that. But anyway, that's a great way of, uh, signing off the show. Uh, we are going to leave you guys with, you know, Hey, go out there and make the world a better place. That's the great thing about commercial real estate. If you're watching on the YouTube channel, don't forget to like subscribe, hit that bell. So that you get the notification every time Andy and I go live or me and a guest or whatever we're doing. Um, if you're listening on the podcast, I would very much appreciate a, a review uh, so that we can keep this content coming to more and more viewers. It's been exciting watching how much that has been growing here over the last couple of months. Y'all are clearly sharing it with your friends, and I certainly appreciate that. Uh, and until next time, y'all take care.